Get your Bibles out to Mark chapter 8, and uh, I want to keep preaching into uh, uh, the series we've been talking about, Remarkable, Seeing the Glory of God Through the Eyes of Mark. And I just want to say something that I think is really important. Um, I had a pastor who shot me a text this morning who was encouraging, uh, hey, may the Holy Spirit, you know, rip up our sermons this morning, and may we just sit in his presence. And I'm like, let me just say something. Anytime the Holy Spirit wants to do that, I'm game, just so to be clear on that. But here's the problem we get to sometimes when we're moving in the Holy Spirit, trying to keep Holy Ghost balance. How many of you know when a pastor preaches and we're reading from the Bible, those are the words of Jesus, so you never put the word, the, the living word, Jesus, from the written word, uh, the Bible, and the Holy Spirit. Don't ever make them like warring with each other. How I many you know it's not either or, it's all of the above. And so you have to have an understanding of the Jesus you're worshiping to fall in love with Jesus and to know who the Holy Spirit is. Otherwise, you're just chasing experiences with God. So can you understand the difference? We, we need the banks of the river. That's the, that's the word of God. And then you need the Holy Spirit, which is the river. Uh, banks with no river is meaningless, but a river with no banks is a swamp. And those are equally undesirable places to be in, all right? So how many of you know the Word of God always fuels the Spirit of God, and the two together are like defibrillators. They bring, they bring to life dead things. Now, let me, can I just share another vision with you guys? The purpose of revival is to revive something that was once dead, Churches, we technically should not be crying out for revival because unless we're just dead and we need help, we should be crying out for a fresh outpouring for more of Jesus and more of his presence. We're already alive, but how many of you know we want more? And um, I just want more. I, I don't want to be revived here. I want to be, uh, what's the word? I want to be taken to another orbit of loving Jesus and enjoying Jesus. There's great fruitfulness that God's doing. And, uh, and don't miss what he's doing. He's wanting to rock you, and he's wanting to expand you, and he's wanting to grow you, and he's wanting to freshly encounter you. And guess what? He, he can do that this morning. He can do it in all the ministries throughout the week. He can do it in your prayer closet. He can do it at home. He can do it wherever he wants to do it. Our approach should always be more Holy Spirit, more Holy Spirit. But please hear me. I don't ever want to be a church that has to cry out for a revival because that means we've missed him. And it means that we're in a terrible place. I'm looking for long-term reformation by a lively bunch of people who have been encountered by Jesus but who are always hungry for more. You understand the difference? In other words, it's not, I'm not looking for a week-long experience or a two-week-long experience, although, man, if the Lord wants to just shut everything down and we do nothing but bask in his presence for however long, praise the Lord, I'm all for it. But how many you know, at some point, you leave that experience and then you go into the world that Jesus came to revive and save and heal. So here's what I see happening. I'm just giving a little side comment on revival. I have been disturbed over the course of my lifetime that places that were birthplaces of revival after the Spirit of the Lord lifted, they were like burned out shells of what they once were. In other words, the church that birthed it was not stronger after the revival. It was weaker after the revival. It happened in Toronto. It happened in Florida, uh, at the church in Florida that was the centerpiece of revival. In other words... It was not a model that sustained ongoing transformation and growth. It actually left the church weaker after the outburst that happened. I and mean, I'm just observing this. Here's my vision. Ongoing visitations of the Holy Spirit, where after someone gets rocked and encountered and comes to know Jesus, how many of you know that's just the beginning of their life? 
They have to be discipled. They have to figure out who they are. They, they have to get a job because you have to eat. I mean, we're still living in this world. So Jesus comes, you, have, you still have to go about your business. Like your mortgage doesn't disappear when revival shows up. Just to let you all know. Like there's real life, but the Holy Spirit so transforms the atmosphere that everything we do gets easier. So guess what happens at Celebrate Recovery? People are getting radically delivered from addictions and hurts and habits and hangouts. Guess what happens at our encounters? The Holy Spirit is so powerful. The worst case is getting transformed by God. Just in a moment, what was so hard for so many years all of a sudden becomes easy. People are getting saved all over the place because the presence of God is so powerful in a community. You'll hear them saying, but all these people getting saved. Guess what? Somebody's got to be a spiritual mom and father to them and teach them the word and help them get established. That's you. So I want you to notice something. The reason we have all these worship leaders is because I believe God's getting us set up for extended evenings of worship where the presence of God, where the word is preached and where God is moving. And all y'all that came from all these different churches and you were involved in leadership, praise the Lord. I'm glad for all the training that was done because you're going to be at the altar. You're leading people to Christ. You're going to be praying over sick people. You're going to be praying over oppressed people. Are y'all ready for that? Because that's what revival creates, work. Work. Stuff doesn't happen by magic. You know what's going on in Asbury? There's people working their rear ends off, guarding doors from people sneaking in, uh, making lines, handing out this, getting food, getting water, people on stage, get the next person up, keep following. This takes an army to facilitate a move of God. So welcome. anybody up for that? Anybody want to be a part of that? Because uh, that's you. Uh, it means we all get in the game and we all get taken to the next level in terms of our effectiveness. That's what I'm hungry for because here's the deal. After that move changes or God's doing something different, the church is stronger. The church is more equipped. The church has greater influence. The church is reaching more. The, the, the outreach is greater and farther than ever before. We're not weaker. Y'all with me? I think there's something new God's trying to do. But that's just me pontificating a little bit. Let's get to Mark's gospel. I'm going to give you some C's this morning for as long as we have time. Holy cow. I'm, all, I'm not even going to. I'm going to give you some C's. The Christ, the cross, the cut, that is the shortcut, the cost, and the crown. But we probably won't get into all those, so you'll have to listen to first service, all right? Because um, you guys are talking way too much this service. Take a look at uh, verse 27, Mark chapter 8. We're going to talk about the Christ. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee, and they went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. And as they were walking along, Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? Jesus asked them, hey, have you read the New Life magazine? Who do you say that I am? Have you noticed these magazines come out at the supermarkets every year around Easter, and they all ask the same stupid questions, and they all get it wrong. It gives me indigestion at Easter seeing all of this because I'm like, you people are still asking the wrong question. I mean, you know, Jesus made it clear who he was. We need to stop asking the question. What we need to start asking is, are we going to embrace him personally in our lives and submit to him? But they're still asking the same question, and so Jesus is doing a little 
customer survey with the guys. Hey, who are people saying I am? And it's the same thing. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some others are saying that you're one of the prophets. Um, I mean, you know, his family thought he was out of his mind. Other people thought he was a liar. We had people that thought he was just a prophet. Some people thought he was a good teacher. But how many of you know this is what I'm talking about in terms of revival? You can't experience Christ if you don't know who he is. And you certainly don't want to experience a Christ that's made up in your own mind because that's not the Christ of the gospel. And so Jesus asked the guys, hey, what are people saying? But then I want you to see, see how he shifts the question here. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? In other words, he's not looking for secondhand opinions. And I want to drive this home. When we stand before the Lord on the great day, he's not going to say, who did your parents believe that I was? You know, I was witnessing with a guy when I, years ago when I ran for office and I was on a certain committee and I, I asked the committee if we could open in prayer and ask the Lord for wisdom. Well, the chairman head started getting a little nervous and the first thing that he said was, oh, well, I don't, have a, I don't have a problem with you praying. My mother played the organ at the Methodist church. <laughs> and I sat there going, what the heck does your mother playing an organ at the Methodist church have to do with my request that we seek the Lord for wisdom right now? But see, he was playing the guilty by association game. How many of you know your parents' faith will not save you? Your pastor's faith will not save you. Your life group leader's faith will not save you. Jesus asked each one of us personally, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? In other words, when we stand before him on the great day, there's not going to be any deflecting and there's not going to be any secondhand opinions that count. There's only one opinion, your opinion, and your opinion better be accurate. And your opinion better match who Jesus really is. So he says to them, who, who do you say personally that, that I am? Now, this is incredible because it's a watershed moment in the gospel. And Peter goes on and actually gives the right answer. Now, I mean, you know, that is a miracle in and of itself that Peter gave a right answer. Because normally Peter's taking his shoe out of his mouth, and he will in just a moment. He'll be true to character. But at this point, he is the first one that we have recorded in human history that makes the right declaration about the identity of who Jesus is. And look at what he says here. He says, you are the Messiah or the Christ. Messiah was the Hebrew term. Christ is the Greek term. They both mean the anointed one. You are the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer, uh, and you are God's anointed one, the Christ. Uh, you have been sent to redeem planet Earth. And Peter gives the right answer. And that, in fact, like I said that I can't think of a, a single question that is more important than this question in, the, in, in all of human history. Who is Jesus? I love what John says. This is John chapter 20. It's not on the screen. But this is John's account of Jesus. The disciples, it says in John 20, verse 30, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in John's gospel. But these signs are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you'll have life by the power of his name. I want you to see this. Why did John write his gospel? Why did Mark write his gospel? So that you would believe Jesus is the Messiah, that's the Redeemer, the Savior, but he's also the Son of God. That means he is God Almighty. And that by believing in him, 
That's how you're going to have supernatural, eternal life in his name. So this is a watershed moment in, in Mark's gospel. Everything builds up to this high water mark where he asks him this question. I want you to see something. From this point on, the question on, everything starts going back downhill toward the cross. It's like as if the clouds on a beautiful sunny day, a cloud the size of a man's fist, moved over and blocked the sun and everything went dark. The rest of Mark's gospel starts dealing with Jesus uh, making his way to the cross where he's going to be crucified for our sins. But this is interesting. Mark's gospel begins geographically at the lowest point in all of Israel, the, the Jordan River Valley, and reaches the highest point right here where this question is asked. He's literally at the base of Mount Hermon all the way to the north, and from that high point where the question is asked, who am I, he begins making his way all the way back to the cross. Now, let me just say this. The cross would be meaningless if we don't understand who Jesus is. And the problem with trying to share Christ with the culture today is that many people don't have a clue about who Jesus is. And when you tell them Jesus died for you, Jesus paid the price for your sin, it goes in one ear and out the other because, number one, they don't see themselves as sinners. Number two, they don't see any need for Jesus to die. I've heard people say, well, that was nice of him, but why did he do that? He really didn't need to do that because they have absolutely no conception about who that was that was nailed to the cross. In fact, this is interesting. In the life of the average Jew, during Jesus' life, I heard uh, one, one uh, historian estimate that the average Jewish person might have seen upwards to 30,000 crucifixions because that's the way Rome treated their, their prisoners, all right? They crucified them. So crucifixion was not anything new to anybody in that day. So if Jesus is crucified, it would have been a big yawn unless you understand who it is that's being crucified. What sets this man apart from everybody else? I mean, this moment was so powerful in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Now, let me just share something with you. That's been a controversial verse for, for folks. The rock is not talking about Peter. Thank God it's not talking about Peter. Jesus is not building his church on the cornerstone of the apostle Peter. And if you read anything of the gospel, you should be going, hallelujah, because that's probably not the lead guy that you'd be picking, all right? Um, Peter was impulsive. He was constantly saying things he shouldn't say. He, you know, he, most of us can relate to Peter. What is the rock he's talking about? He's talking about the rock of revelation, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world, and he is the cornerstone of the church of Jesus Christ. That's the rock he's talking about. This is a massive moment, and can I just say to every person in this room, that's the answer to the question. If Jesus is not your personal Messiah, if you have not invited him to be your Savior, if you have not repentant of your sin, if you don't recognize he is God and he demands total authority over your life, you have not taken the first step in being born again. And there are a whole bunch of people that worship a Jesus like that that's really not much different than any other moral leader or whatever. And we've got to make sure we don't fall into the same trap. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God and the Savior. And then look at what he says next. Let's talk about the cross. It says, from then on, Matthew says, from then on, Mark just says, then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things, must be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed. But three days later, he would rise from the dead. Now, can we just pause right here? That word must, I circle every must in my Bible. Must is such a great word. Let me tell you why. 
When Jesus says this thing must happen, what he's really saying is this. Satan is not in control of our lives at all. God is in control. He's providentially ruling over the affairs of men. And Jesus says something that no other human being in their right mind could possibly say, unless you're God. Jesus describes the treatment he's going to receive. He describes the nature of his death. He says he's going to be buried three days, and then he's coming out of the ground. When have you met somebody that talks like that? I'm just asking. Like, are you going to put him on the same level of Muhammad? Are you going to put him on the same level as Confucius or any other religious leader out there? Don't you dare. This is why I always have a fit about those stupid bumper stickers, the the coexist bumper stickers. Quit putting Jesus on the same plane as a bunch of religious quacks. That wasn't politically correct, but it was biblically correct, all right? (laughs) Jesus said these things must happen, which means he is in charge of his own life and history. Who does that? Only God. This is why he's worthy of our worship and he's worthy of our lives. And so I want you to see what happens. After Jesus said, I must suffer, Peter's mind goes blank because he's like, no, 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 that's not the, that's not the Messiah. That's not how he's going to come. That's, the, the Messiah's not going to be the one persecuted. He's going to be the one liberating us. This is not the way it's going to go. But Jesus says four things. I'm going to die. My death is going to be intentional. I mean it for it to happen. He's not running. This is beautiful. He's not running from it. He's running into it. It will not be a suicide. It's going to be murder. And he actually mentions the murderers in the text. And then uh, he goes on to say he's going to raise from the dead. Now, Peter started off so well, but I want you to see the devil is always looking for shortcuts. And can I encourage you all, don't fall for the shortcuts that Satan offers us. The cross is not easy, and suffering is not easy, and the road to life is not always paved with gold. It's a challenging road, but Peter now starts putting his foot in his mouth, which is characteristic of the way he acted most of the time. Look at verse 32. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to reprimand the Son of God for saying such stupid things. In fact, Matthew's gospel, this is what Peter says, heaven forbid, Jesus, this will never, ever happen to you. Now, how many of you have figured out you shouldn't reprimand God? Like, don't do it. It's not going to end well. Peter says, you know, God, Jesus, uh, I know you're the Messiah and stuff, but this is not what's going to happen. And the Greeks suggest that he's been doing this. He's been chewing on Jesus' ear for some time about this very thing. Finally, look what happens. Verse 33, Jesus turns around and looks at his disciples, and then he reprimands Peter. Get away from me, Satan. I mean, that's a pretty strong rebuke. Get away from me, Satan. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's point of view. Can I just encourage us that let's not get into the natural as it relates to what's going on into our culture. Sometimes people get depressed, discouraged, as we should be at times when we see stuff happening. But how many of you figured out God is working, and he's on the move, and he's already way ahead of the devil? So these, these moves of God, these fires that are starting on university campuses, these were prophesied weeks ago, months ago, by prophetic voices in America, what they saw. Um, 
there are so many people, I, I, I've seen critical things come out about, about the revival already. Why in the world would anybody want to be critical of a bunch of college students who just want to sit and worship Jesus on their face, repenting, and, and don't want to leave the chapel? Like, who in their right mind, unless you've got a religious spirit, would want to sit back and critique that? Like, stop it. Stop it. What's the matter with you? What do you want them to do? Out, rape, pillage, steal, rob banks? You know, what do you, come on. They're worshiping the Lord. They're on their face. They don't want to leave chapel. Come on. This, why would you critique that? I've seen the same stupid comments from the body of Christ about the chosen. Oh, you know, it's extra. It's, it's Hollywood telling a story. It's not meant to be verse by verse by verse by verse. People are getting rocked by seeing Jesus in the, in the chosen. People who never would have showed up in church are getting rocked by the gospel. Why would you be a critic of that? Stop complaining or speaking or being adversarial to something that you see God doing that maybe you don't understand. Come on, we're not God. Quit being like Peter. Get the shoe out of your mouth. Believe that God is moving. Believe that he's, that he's active. I'm just going to throw out another one. I told you, as soon as you pray for revival, you all got a job, and you're all going to be at the altar. You're going to be ministering when you're ready, right? You're going to be put into work. Let me tell you something else. As soon as there's a move of God, you'll be criticized. You will be criticized, and our church will be criticized. Now, they'll call us all kinds of names. They already have. I've already been there. I saw the preview. Religious people always criticize what God's trying to do. Let's not be one of those religious people. Let's not be an adversary to the purposes of God. In other words, let's see things from a God-centered perspective. And and my dad used to teach us this. This is simple truth, but so profound. You don't have to have an opinion. Well, Pastor, what do you think? No opinion. Hey, where do you think this is going? I'm not God, but I just trust him. I'm sure he's taking it to a great end. You don't always have to have an opinion. In fact, it's better if you don't. Or else, unless you want to follow in Peter's footsteps, all right, which is not so great. Warren Wearsby said this, one minute Peter was a rock, the next minute Peter was a stumbling block, all right? Um, that's kind of the way it is. Take a look at what happens next. I want, to, I want to lay this track for us today. Let's take a look at the cost. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, Jesus said this, if any of you wants to be my follower, let me just pause right here. Look how wide the invitation is. It's as wide as the arms and the heart of God. If any of you want to be a follower of Jesus, we could run out the doors with a megaphone and yell to the whole community. We, if we had a big enough megaphone, we could yell to the entire planet. If any of you want to be a follower of Christ, the invitation stands. How many of you know that's good news? God's heart is big and it's broad and it's wide. But look at what it says. It comes with some conditions. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way and take up your cross and follow me. Three things Jesus talks about. First of all, he says, give up your own way. You know, one of the words says, deny yourself. Can I just tell you, we're coming into a season where most people get this all wrong. We're coming into Lent. Have any of you ever experienced Lent? This is the season where people do noble things for God. Like, I'm going to give up watermelon for God for the next 40 days. Dude, it's March. You can't find a watermelon in Indiana. (laughs) The Lord does not want us to give up things for him. He wants us to give ourselves for him. 
And I want to remind you, this is not some morbid thing. Oh, I was, I was living a great life, and then I became a Christian. I got to deny myself, man. I'm, I know it's good, but I, you know, I'm not real happy about it. That's not what he's talking about. How many of you figured out when you deny yourself, in other words, you deny your selfishness and you choose to give yourself to Christ, you get more joy than less joy. You get more pleasure, not less pleasure. The call to self-denial is not for less, it's to more. We just get lied to all the time. We think our lives are so great. And Jesus is saying, no, they're not. There's so much more I want to bless you with. In other words, line yourself up with his purposes. That's why the person who says, well, I prayed that prayer one time at an altar, and I filled out the card, and I'm good to go, but they live a selfish life. You're not born again. Amen. That's right. You're not born again. You're holding on to your life. You're protecting your life. But you got, listen, you got fire insurance. Jesus did not die for fire insurance. He died for a relationship with us. He did not die to keep us from hell. He died to bring us to himself. There's a big difference. So he says, first of all, I want you to lay your, your life down, and I want you to follow my life. I want you to be a follower of me. Now, one of my pet peeves on the mission field, I, I would be leading teams of young people. We're in a strange place. We've never been there before. I'm the leader, so I know, like, the city we're supposed to go to, and I know how we're supposed to get there because someone actually told me. But we're out walking in the streets, and all the teenagers are ahead of me instead of behind me. So I'd ask them the question. I'd say, hey, do you guys know, have you ever been in this country before? No. Do you know where we're going? No. Do you know how to get there? No. Then why are you in front of me? It's kind of like Jesus with us. Do you guys know where you're going? No. We're clueless most of the time. Do you know how you're going to get there? No. Then get behind and follow the leader. Have you figured this out? When you give your life to Christ, you lay down your own life to find life. You stop pursuing your agenda, and you join his agenda. Have you ever been this way in your immature Christian walk where you're always asking God to bless what you're doing? Yes. Kind of backwards, isn't it? How about we join what he's doing, and when you join what he's doing, you don't have to ask to be blessed. It automatically follows you. Amen. So follow what he's doing. Figure out what he's doing. Release your life to him. And then take up your cross. Now, the cross is just simply saying that, you know what, today, I'm not living for Ron Johnson. I'm going to live for Jesus Christ, and I'm going to follow him. Look at what Jesus says. If you try to hang on to your life, like grabbing a hold of some sand on the beach, and have you ever tried to grab a big handful of sand only to find that it's squirting out of your hands? If you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news... You're going to save it. I want you to see the motivation here. Give up your life for Jesus' sake and for the sake of the gospel. That's the motivation. Out of love for Christ and out of love for the gospel. That's the motivation. What do you benefit, the Bible says, if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Can we just pause right here, saints? Do you have a view of your soul that matches Jesus' view of your soul? In other words, are you focused on your interior life, the condition of your heart, your passion level for Jesus, your, your walk of obedience, your, your pursuit of relationship with God? Like, how is your soul? Because Jesus says there's nothing more precious in all of the world than a person's soul. 
You know, I just did a funeral for, uh, for Sandra Loney and her husband Ray. Sandra, not for Sandra, but for her husband Ray. They had been married three months shy of 70 years. I mean, that's a long life. He fought in the Korean War when he was just 18 years old. Um, just amazing, amazing, amazing. But this man had lived all of his life in resistance to the Lord. He just never gave his life to the Lord. And Sandra told me, she said, I, I pursued him. I prayed for his soul. I, I fought for his soul. And finally, before he passed away, he gave his life to Christ. Now, I thank God, first of all, for the mercy of God. But how many of you know, to live 90 years and slide in by the skin of the grace of God and by the skin of your teeth is not the model that you want to have. You missed your whole life. You missed the whole purpose of your life. You missed all that Christ wanted to do with you. You missed it. But, but listen, a godly wife realizes, what if I spend 90 years or spend 70 years married to this man and he drifts off into a Christless eternity? What's more important than his soul? And what's more important at a funeral than facing the fact that we're all going to face death someday? And what is the condition of our soul with God? It doesn't matter if you think you're a good person. It doesn't matter if you're pursuing money and wealth or comfort or whatever. All those things are distractions. Who is Jesus Christ to you, and what is the condition of your soul? Now, let me end with this, because this is, this is what I'm saying. This is the full gospel that's not being preached today, because it demands something of us. And, and we don't want to make demands of people. We just want to give them the cotton candy. But, but this is Jesus speaking. There's nothing more important than your soul. And look at what he says next. If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, comma, how I many you know we're living in adulterous and sinful days? There are many people who are ashamed of the message. There's a whole group of clergy that are down protesting a piece of legislation that is simply promoting uh, Christian sexual ethics for public life. Clergy folks, they got all the gowns and everything on. Uh, and they are caving into an agenda today that embraces everything Jesus died for, to free us from. These are clergy. Jesus says, if you're not going to stand for me in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in glory, in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. There, listen, church, all of us should hear this. We're going to stand before Christ someday. And remember, there's that terrible passage of Scripture. Terrible because it's, it shakes us. And Jesus says, who are you? You called me Lord and Lord, and you even did miracles in my name. You prayed for a sick person once they got healed. You thought you're good. But he says, I don't even know you. Never knew you. Because, listen, he says, on this planet, when push came to shove, you were more concerned with your reputation than you were with my reputation. You, you were ashamed of me. You always, you always went away from publicly identifying with me as if I was an embarrassment to you. So I, since you couldn't identify with me on the great day, I'm not going to identify with you. Can anybody think of a more terrible moment? Let me ask you this question as it relates to denying of ourselves and following Christ. Jesus said, follow me 19 times in the Gospels. That's pretty crazy. Notice, follow me, a person, not a list of rules. Follow me. If you wonder if you're ready to take up your own cross, ask yourself these questions. Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means losing some of your closest friends? Comma. I went to Lake Central High School, and my claim to fame was my senior class voted me friendliest senior guy. And you want to know the truth? I had no friends. 
I'm talking about deep friends, genuine friendships. I was friendly. Everybody liked me. But I can't tell you how many times, because my sophomore year, I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, and God really rocked my life. And this is what I told Jesus. I said, Jesus, if it means having no friends that are passionate for you, I'd rather, I'd rather have you and be lonely on Friday night than have all the friendships in my school. And you know what? He took me at, at my word. Uh, not that there weren't other Christians in school. I'm positive that there were, but they weren't in my circle of relationships. And so I can't tell you how many times on Friday nights I literally said to the Lord, if it means nobody else in my life but you, I'll choose you. With tears running down my face as a 16-year-old kid who had been freshly baptized in the Holy Spirit. You know what? There are people all over the world. There are people you go to an encounter, you get rocked. You know how you get free from all the junk that you're in? You get new friends. You, you, quit, you quit hanging with people who pull you down. Or you don't have to quit hanging with them. They quit hanging with you because you talk about the Lord and you love the Lord. In other words, your whole life's changed. You cannot come to know Christ and not have an impact on your social world. And so Jesus says, if it means having no friends or having me, will you choose me? These are all questions of allegiance. They're all questions of our heart. How about this one? Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means alienation from your family? There are people all over the world, as soon as they come to know Christ, they are ostracized by their family, especially in the Muslim community, where you have honor killings and all these horrific kinds of things that happen when a man or woman submits their life to Christ. If this is happening with our brothers and sisters all over the world, I know there are people here, you gave your life to Christ, and now they think you go to that Rolling Stones church, you're part of a cult. Uh, they're, they're so worried about the condition of your soul. Are, are you will? Is Jesus worth it? Amen. Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means the loss of your reputation? How I many you know peer pressure doesn't change? It grows with you at, at age. You, you, you leave high school, but guess what? Now you're in the workforce, and guess what? There's still peer pressure more than ever. Will you identify with Christ in the marketplace and risk losing your reputation to embrace his reputation? Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means losing your job? Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means losing your life? These are deep questions, but they're questions that Jesus wants us to think about because at the end of the day, it's a matter of allegiance. It's a matter of caring for our soul. It's making sure that we're ready for the great day. And you know what? I just want to challenge you guys. I feel a resurgence of holy boldness that's happening in our culture today. Um, some people call it pushback, but we're not just pushing back against the culture. We're pushing back against hell. We're pu pushing back against darkness. And what you realize is that there's a lot of people that really do love the Lord. They're just being awake, awakened. And can I just say this? They're looking for people with courage. Be a courageous person. You'll inspire other people. Uh, there's other people that share your same value. One more quick story. We, we were a... We were at the Chamber of Commerce in Crown Point years ago when they were pushing gambling in our community. And, uh, and the guy at the time, I won't mention his name, he stood up at this gathering of business and community leaders, and he said this at the very end. He goes, you know, I know there's some religious people that have a problem with gambling, but you know what? You can just stay home and mind your own business. Well, the Spirit of God went off on the inside of me. <laughs> And we got to the question and answer time at the end, and I raised my hand, and he called on me, and I stood up. And I, I'm paraphrasing, 
But I said something like this. You're telling me we should just stay home and mind our own business, but you're wanting to put one of these floating ticks in our community that sucks all the lifeblood out of our community and that, you know, it, it, that causes our, our men to go after work to the to gambling boats to lose their paycheck instead of going home to provide food for their kids and their wife, and that enc- encourages every host of sin and moral evil, and you're wanting us to stay home and mind our own business. And I told him, well, you're in my business right now because you're creating more work for me because of all the casualties and fallouts of what this is going to have in our community. So you're already in my business. You're already in my pocketbook. You're already in my time. Uh, so that's that. It's like a Holy Ghost grenade went off in the room. (laughs) Afterwards, I can't tell you how many hidden disciples. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I believe like you. Then why didn't you stand up and say something? Why didn't we run the guy out of there? Tell him he wasn't welcome in Lake County. Because we're hidden disciples. But you know, when the Holy Spirit comes, everything goes public. I remember sitting with the superintendent of schools. One more story. Two minutes. I got two minutes. (laughs) Sitting with the superintendent of schools. This was years ago. Not the same superintendent. Who politely told me that his faith was private and that we shouldn't be bringing Jesus into the public schools. And I said, really? Our faith should be private. Jesus was beaten beyond recognition, naked, and nailed to a cross publicly for you, but your faith in him is private. The veins started bulging in his neck. Because <laughs> I mean, you know, there's nothing private about Jesus' love for us. Amen. That's right. Totally public. That's right. And what he's really asking is, do we have the courage to follow him? Do we really believe who he says he is? Will we follow him? Will we take up our cross? Will we care for our souls? Will we care for the souls of other people? You know, there are people who think that if you just have a lot of stuff, that's how you live a good life. So if the view's pretty and you live in a gated community where no one can get to you and you isolate yourself from people so that you can live your private little life, that that's the good life. But Jesus said, no, if you lose your life for my sake and then you're going to find life. In other words, don't isolate yourself. Give yourself away to other people. That's why ministry, if we don't love people, that's why I tell young pastors, if you don't love people, please resign and get out of the church. You're going to destroy it. How do you not love people and be a pastor? How do you not love people and be a follower of Christ? You've got to love people. You've got to care for their souls. And that's what the Holy Spirit helps us to do. So let's lay our lives down. Let's take up the cross. Let's follow Christ. Let's be bold. And I would, I would encourage us, how about before the day's in? Could you just publicly say, you know what? I love Jesus Christ. I've given my life to him, and uh, I know who he is. Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God, and you're my Savior. Stand to your feet. I want to pray with you this morning. We have our team up here, and listen, I'm all for it. If the Lord is moving in your heart... And you're saying, I, I, I want to respond to Jesus. I want to respond to the Holy Spirit. We're in no hurry this morning. I don't care if people are filling this altar to the, all the way into the next worship service. It doesn't matter. Listen, if you don't know Christ, who is Jesus to you? Are you ready to stand before him? Have you laid everything down? Have you embraced the cross? Are you saying, I'm all in for Christ? That's the gospel. That is what it means to be saved. That's what Jesus said. 
And so you know what? The altars are open. Father God, we're asking for more of you. Come, Holy Spirit, not just in college campuses. Come back to your church. Come fill our homes. Lord, fill our ministries. Fill this church in this community. Let a holy boldness arise in our hearts that we would not be ashamed of the gospel. Help us to be great lovers of people. Help us to move in the power of the resurrection. And Lord, may you continue to add to your church daily, not just here at Living Stones, but all across the nations of the world. Let your kingdom continue to expand. Lord, bless this church family. Thank you for everybody here. Lord, give us a greater passion for you. And raise up an army, Lord, from this place that will have an incredible impact on this region and the nations of the world. We pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen, amen. Hey, don't forget the offering on the way out if you want to participate. We love you all. Have a great day. If you need prayer, come on down, all right? We want to pray for you.